Welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner bringing you readings from the following publications. The New York Daily News, Anscape.com, The Merced, California Sun Star Newspaper, Foreign Policy Magazine, Radical Teacher Journal, and I'm going to start with a story about affirmative action from the magazine Inside Higher Education. It's titled, As Affirmative Action Ends, HBCUs Wait or Plan for the Fallout. It was written by Sarah Weissman, published July 12, 2023, and this appeared in the publication Inside Higher Education and its InsideHigherEd.com website. The subtitle is, Some leaders of historically black colleges and universities expect the U.S. Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action to bring a flood of applicants to their institutions. They're not sure they're ready. Carlotta Berry always wanted her daughter, a rising high school sophomore, to attend a historically black college or university. She said that dream has only intensified since the United States Supreme Court recently barred affirmative action in college admissions. Barry, a professor of engineering who lives with her family near Indianapolis and other black parents, have taken to Twitter to lament the court's ruling. She said professors nurtured and encouraged her during her time at Spelman College, an all-women HBCU in Atlanta, which prepared her to attend predominantly white institutions in her graduate education in engineering. She was one of just a few black students and just a few women in most of her graduate school classes. When I sit back and reflect on the amount of microaggressions and bias that I have seen students experience, even in a world with affirmative action, I just don't want to imagine what black and brown students may experience now they go from being one of two or three to possibly one of one students of color in a classroom, she said. She fears if her daughter attends an institution that no longer has asset-based admission, where they properly value diversity in culture, thoughts, strengths, her experience might be even worse. Barry's husband disagrees. He thinks their daughter would be better off attending a predominantly white institution because HBCUs have been historically underfunded and often have fewer resources. Barry believes the trade-off is worth it. As other black parents and students are having similar conversations about whether HBCUs should rise to the top of their college application lists, HBCU leaders are having their own discussions about how to proceed in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling. Some campus officials expect a deluge of applications from black prospective students dismayed by the decision or anticipating being rejected by selective, predominantly white institutions in higher numbers. Others believe the projected wave of new students is being overstated and have adopted a wait-and-see approach. The ruling has contributed to widespread uncertainty across higher education about the future of campus diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts at a time when state bills seeking to limit these initiatives and the teaching of race-related topics have proliferated. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People have called on colleges and universities nationwide to make a diversity-no-matter-what pledge committing to continue recruiting historically underrepresented students despite the ruling. While many HBCUs are eager to accept more students, some of the institution's presidents and advocates worry they don't have the resources and infrastructure to absorb them. Other HBCU administrators doubt the decision will meaningfully affect their institutions compared to predominantly white universities where admissions officials are wringing their hands as they try to determine how to diversify their student bodies without running afoul of the ruling. David A. Thomas, president of Morehouse College, 
An all-man HBCU in Atlanta described the court's blow to race-conscious admissions as a travesty and said he feels a sense of responsibility to serve students who will be affected by the ruling. But Morehouse, which currently has about 2,200 students, isn't prepared for a significant jump in enrollment. Thomas projects applications can double from 7,000 to 14,000 in the next few years. The college's dorms are already at full capacity, and the college would need to increase its faculty by at least a third over the next three years to accommodate an additional 1,000 students while maintaining small class sizes and course quality, he said. He expects there to be many more men who deserve, based on merit, to be at Morehouse that want to be here than I can serve today, he said. Quite frankly, that could financially be beneficial to the college if all we were interested in was the bottom line. We're primarily tuition-dependent. More students mean more tuition, but it will compromise delivering on our promise to our students, in my view. That's the tension. Thomas isn't the only HBCU leader feeling a mix of excitement and trepidation. For example, Leslie Rodriguez-McClellan, Senior Vice President for Student Experience at St. Augustine's University in Raleigh, North Carolina, said that campus leaders are considering plans to add more dorms and update the campus HVAC system and IT infrastructure to be ready for more students. George French, president of Clark Atlanta University, said that if more students seek out HBCUs, the institutions will need not just financial, but programmatic support. If you come to an HBCU for one of our traditional disciplines, law, medicine, education, that's one thing. But if you come for thermonuclear science, we don't have that capacity, French said. Rodriguez Murray, senior vice president of public policy and government affairs at the United Negro College Fund, which represents private HBCUs, said black students are seeing where they are welcome, seeing where they will be prioritized, seeing where they will be the focal point. And we look forward to more and more students rediscovering historically black colleges and universities and having them as a top choice. Robert Palmer, professor and chair of educational leadership and policy studies at Howard University, said black students could apply to HBCUs in larger numbers, particularly well-known and selective institutions such as Howard, Spelman, and Morehouse, because they tend to view HBCUs as safe places and places where race is not an issue, especially at a time when some black students feel less welcome on predominantly white campuses. David K. Shepard, Chief Business and Legal Officer at the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, a membership organization representing public HBCUs, said colleges in TMCF's network were already experiencing enrollment booms that put a strain on some campuses. Prior to the Supreme Court decision, applications to public HBCUs were up 44% on average relative to last year, he added. He worries that HBCUs will be faced with increasingly hard decisions about whom to admit, and new applicants who previously would have opted to attend a predominantly white institution, particularly Ivy League colleges, could displace other prospective students eager to attend HBCUs. Unless these institutions get more federal and state funding, somebody invariably is going to be left in the breach, he said. That was the article, As Affirmative Action Ends, HBCUs Wait or Plan for the Fallout. It was published July 12th, 2023. It was written by Sarah Weissman, and it appeared at the InsideHigherEd.com website. My next story compares being black in the United States versus being black in Great Britain. The title is, 
Britain's Racism is in Americas. It was written by Angela Saini and published July 30, 2023 in Foreign Policy magazine. My race changed when I moved from Britain to the United States two years ago. I don't mean that I tick a different box now. I remain born to Indian immigrants, a person with obviously brown skin. In both countries, I'm categorized as Asian. What changed when I crossed the Atlantic was what my race signified. British Asians, the United Kingdom's largest ethnic minority group by a sizable margin, faced some of the highest mortality rates in the country in the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. In the United States, meanwhile, deaths among Asian Americans were the lowest of any group. This can be explained in large part by demographic variations rooted in different histories of immigration. But the figures also prove that race isn't a static quantity. It depends on context. If I had moved to the United States in 1971 rather than 2021, I wouldn't have been categorized as Asian at all. Officially, I would have been labeled white because I would have been seen as belonging to so-called Indo-European stock. Even now, not all Americans consider Indians to be Asian, since Asian Americans are commonly seen as being of East Asian heritage. When it comes to race, the where and the when make a difference. That is the nub of This Is Not America, Why Black Lives in Britain Matter, a polemic published this summer by the provocative British writer and critic Tomiwa Owolade, who migrated to England from Nigeria at the age of nine. His book focuses on black Britons, who comprise roughly 4% of the population. By contrast, roughly 14% of people in the United States identify as black. Another difference, black is generally a proper noun in the United States nowadays. In Britain, it's usually not, and Owolade uses black throughout. Owolade's central concern is that race in Britain has been refracted and magnified through the United States lens, one justifiably fixed on its black-white divide. The problem, he argues, is that the United States' sins when it comes to race are unequaled in Britain. Racism is not the same everywhere in the world, he writes, adding that the racism that black people in Britain faced after World War II was much closer in nature to the racial hostility encountered by other immigrant groups. Yet even Owolade, capital O-W-O-L-A-D-E, can't help but look to the United States, admitting to the reader that he has joined those he criticizes by focusing on the experiences of black people in Britain despite the fact that there are more Asians in the country. That line betrays the exasperation behind This Is Not America, one that many of us who write about race in Britain have shared. Owolade wonders why the United States has such a tight grip on how Britons think, himself included. That's a fair question, and one that could easily extend to why almost no UK high street is without a McDonald's or a Starbucks, or why British cinema screens are dominated by Hollywood movies. Such is the importance of race to U.S. politics that it reverberates across the world. The protests that followed the murder of George Floyd by police officers in Minneapolis in 2020 prompted activists globally to force debates on race in countries sometimes unaccustomed to having them. In the United Kingdom, this fervent couple of years provoked a long-overdue public reckoning with the country's bizarre nostalgia about the British Empire. Its rose-tinted, some might say diluted, view of itself as always being on the right side of history as taking a much-needed knock. At the same time, 
publishing space has finally been given to British ethnic minorities to tell these stories, including journalist Sathnam Sangara's accessible and popular Empire Land, How Imperialism Has Shaped Modern Britain, and journalist Rennie Edelodge's best-selling Why I No Longer Talk to White People About Race. At long last, it feels as though Britain can start to be honest with itself. But according to Owolade, Britain is still not being honest. Not really. Not as long as it pretends that the United States' problems are its own. This can read at many moments in his book like an apologia for the British state. Everything is so different here, he quotes the great U.S. abolitionist writer Frederick Douglass in a letter from Edinburgh in 1846. No insults to encounter, no prejudice to encounter, but all is smooth. I am treated as a man and equal brother. Here is proof that Britain was always better, Ovalade appears to suggest, overlooking that Douglas wasn't an everyday visitor. He came to Britain as a welcome guest to deliver lectures on slavery. He was surrounded by supporters of the abolitionist cause, some of whom raised money to purchase his freedom. Lynching was never practiced in the United Kingdom, Ovalade continues. That is not true. While not the same in scale or nature as U.S. lynchings, racist murders have happened on British soil. During riots in the city of Liverpool in 1919, a white mob drowned a black seaman named Charles Watton in what has been described historically as a lynching. Only this summer did Liverpool finally commemorate Watton with a permanent headstone. And despite Owolade's complaints about Britain borrowing from U.S. race debates, even he has to admit that there has always been a distinguished, if relatively small, cadre of British race scholars, most notably Stuart Hall and Balavanera Sivanandan, capital A-M-B-A-L-A-V-A-N-E-R, capital S-I-V-A-N-A-N-D-A-N, and Paul Gilroy. It's interesting, though, that Gilroy, famous for his 1987 book, there ain't no black in the Union, Jack, felt the need to leave Britain for Yale University for a while, telling The Guardian in 2000, even to be interested in race, let alone to assert its centrality to British nationalism, is to sacrifice the right to be taken seriously. Herein lies the problem. Is it any wonder that anti-racist activists in the United Kingdom have no choice but to lean on U.S. scholars for inspiration, when British universities and cultural institutions have done such a poor job of retaining even the small number of black academics and encouraging homegrown scholarship on race. One of Oluwade's targets is Kende Andrews, Britain's first professor of black studies, who has argued that decolonizing British universities is such an uphill battle that black Britons would be better off building their own institutions. In the United States, historically black colleges and universities have indeed been vehicles for black academic excellence. But as Owolade asks, how feasible would this be in a country like Britain with this relatively small black population? The more pressing problem, which Owolade skims over, is that Britain's right-wing conservative government has made any anti-racism efforts increasingly difficult. In 2020, members of the government criticized the National Trust a major conservation charity for running a historical review of the relationship of its properties to slavery and colonialism. In another especially petty move in 2021, then-Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden warned museums not to move any statues or monuments linked to Britain's colonial past. 
I was on the advisory boards of two large museums at the time and was horrified at the chilling effect this had just when cultural institutions were starting to make genuine progress in addressing uncomfortable parts of British history. Since then, conservative politicians have doubled down on their insistence that the British shouldn't be made to feel ashamed of their country's past. As selective as some of Owolade's critics are, he's more convincing when he explores his own relationship to Britain. His argument goes beyond the fact that being a black Briton isn't the same as being a black American. It's that even to be a black Briton isn't the same for all black Britons. He is right that the label groans under the weight of diversity within it. The point is that to accept the humanity of black people or anyone else, you can't define them as a homogeneous block, he explains. Owolade is referring here to Britons of African and Caribbean heritage, but until recently, the label black was applied so widely that it even included British Asians such as myself. Even well into the 1990s, to be non-white was to be considered politically black. My trade union, the National Union of Journalists, categorized me as a black member. These days, though it is more narrowly defined, race is no longer a solidly reliable predictor of even political affiliation. Those at the top of the conservative party running the country are a case in point. Hostile to immigration, seemingly unconcerned about crushing poverty rates, and unashamedly anti-woke, they are also more racially diverse than any cabinet in British history. The first non-white prime minister belongs not to the left-wing Labour Party, but to the Conservatives. For left-wing British politicians who have long basked in the myth of racial solidarity, assuming that immigrants and the children of immigrants all want the same things, the overdue discovery that we actually don't all think the same way appears to have come as a surprise. In 2022, Labour MP Rupa Hook, capital R-U-P-A, capital H-U-Q, went so far as to describe then-conservative Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng, who has Ghanaian heritage, of being only superficially black, partly because of his private school upbringing and cut-glass English accent. Hook later apologized for her remarks. Like much of the conservative cabinet, Owolade belongs to a generation of ethnic minorities who no longer find a good fit for themselves on the left, who feel left behind by the politically black politics of the 1980s. That time is gone, for better or worse. The experience of race in Britain has become more complex, and unfortunately, it's only the center-right that seems to have noticed. As demographics shift and old political certainties break down, left-wing leaders are in desperate need of fresh thinking about race. The Labour Party, which is tipped to win the next national election, must understand Britain as it is, not as it imagines it to be. Looking to the United States will not help. Owolati's answer is to build a more united sense of Britishness, one that fully embraces everyone and consequently transcends race. He is irreducibly British, he concludes in his final chapter. But that is the problem. Racism is what stands in the way of this ideal. I'm often asked which country I believe is the most racist. The United Kingdom of the United States. I find that many Britons look to the United States with a mixture of pity and relief, telling themselves that at least their country isn't burdened with such bitter racial politics and ugly histories of slavery and segregation. But the tales of these two places are in fact deeply intertwined. The founders of the United States borrowed from the prejudices of Europe when building their nation. 
Britain profited generously from the slave trade and its colonies. Britain and the United States built their racial ideologies on exactly the same bedrock. Owolati is right to say that they've diverged since then. No two nations are the same, just like every family has its own dysfunctions. Among the differences, at least as far as I've observed, is that the United States is perhaps more open about racism because its injustices and struggles have been on the same soil. In Britain, many of the brutalities of empire and slavery were carried out at a distance, in places that most everyday Britons never saw. The British find it easier, then, to sweep their own racism under the rug. There are those who can manage to feel horrified at children being detained away from their parents at the U.S. border, yet convince themselves that children dying in small boats to reach the United Kingdom are somebody else's problem. It tends to be a quieter bigotry, dressed up to appear like something more respectable. Some right-leaning British commentators have already welcomed Owolade's book as reassurance that Britain isn't racist the way the United States is. But Britain is racist too, just in its own way. That was the article, Britain's Racism Isn't America's. It was written by Angela Saini and published July 3rd, 2023 at Foreign Policy's magazine's foreignpolicy.com website. My next reading is an obituary from the Merced, California Sun Star newspaper and it's mercedsunstar.com website. The title is Merced native Charles Ogletree, 70, Harvard professor, mentor to President Obama, dies. It was written by Sean Jansen and published August 5, 2023. Charles Ogletree, a Merced native who became a Harvard Law professor and mentored President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama, died on Friday, August 4th, after a 70-year battle with Alzheimer's disease. Ogletree's family was by his side in his home in Maryland, where he passed away. He was 70. Born in Merced in 1952, Ogletree was the son of Charles Sr. and Willie Mae Ogletree. His family, including his grandparents, were migrant workers often picking figs for a living, according to the Sun Star archives. Ogletree left Merced to pursue his education, earning a master's degree from Stanford University and a Juris Doctorate from Harvard Law School. During his career, he focused on advancing civil rights, racial justice, and social tolerance, and was an influential writer and scholar in the legal profession. According to the University of California Merced professor Nigel Hatton, Ogletree's papers spanning his Harvard career as a scholar, teacher and legal theorist from 1985 to 2000 and comprising 500 boxes of letters, legal files, and academic course materials were donated to the Harvard Law School by his family in 2022. Ogletree retired from Harvard Law School in 2020. Harvard Law School Dean John F. Manning shared news of Ogletree's death in a message to the campus community Friday, August 4th, according to the Associated Press. Charles was a tireless advocate for civil rights, equality, human dignity, and social justice, Manning said in the message that the law school emailed to the Associated Press. He changed the world in so many ways, and he will sorely be missed in a world that very much needs him. Among the many highlights during Ogletree's legal career, he represented survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre and the rapper Tupac Shakur in criminal and civil cases. Ogletree also represented Anita Hill when she accused Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment during Thomas's Senate confirmation hearings as a U.S. Supreme Court justice in 1991. 
Their Merced County Courthouse was named the Charles James Ochiltree Jr. Courthouse in his honor this past February. I think that's the one thing he was most proud of, said his brother Richard Ogletree. Even though he's received other awards, he mentored Barack and Michelle Obama when he was at Harvard. He's been around Al Sharpton. He shared the stage with people like Nelson Mandela and Bill Clinton. The fact that his hometown honored him meant the world to him. In 2005, Ogletree was the keynote speaker at the UC Merced campus convocation and opening ceremony. His speech was one of the founding documents of the university, Hatton wrote. Ogletree was the first recipient of the University of California Merced's Allison Clifford Spin Love Prize in Social Justice, Diplomacy, and Tolerance in 2006. Over the years, other recipients of the award include former President Jimmy Carter, the Dalai Lama, Cruz Reynoso, Anita Hill, and others. As a professor at Harvard Law, Ogletree inspired many generations of students, including the Obamas. In a column he wrote for the Sun Star in 2009, Ogletree described their president and first lady as exceptionally gifted students during their time at Harvard. I met Michelle in 1985 and Barack in 1988, and this journey has had many sweet victories and a few bitter defeats. But nothing will match the joy of being a kid born and raised in Merced, finding himself 56 years later serving as a senior advisor and mentor to the president of the United States of America, Ogletree wrote. The Obamas released a statement after Ogletree's death. Michelle and I are heartbroken to hear about the passing of our friend and mentor Charles Ogletree, Obama said in the statement. Ogletree is survived by his wife of 47 years, Pamela Barnes, his two children, Charles J. Ogletree III and Rashida Ogletree George, and four grandchildren. There are some photos that go along with this story. One shows Professor Ogletree in his cap and gown speaking at the University of California, Merced. The other is a picture of the new, modern Charles James Ogletree Jr. Courthouse in his hometown of Merced, California. That was the obituary titled Merced native Charles Ogletree, 70, Harvard Law Professor, Mentor to President Obama Dies. It was written by Sean Jansen, published August 5, 2023, and it appeared in their Merced Sun Star newspaper of Merced, California. My next article is from the Anscape.com website entitled Smithsonian's Afrofuturism Exhibit Explores the Funk of Outer and Inner Space. It was written by Lene O'Neill and published April 4, 2023. The subtitle to this article is From Phyllis Wheatley to George Clinton, National Museum of African American History and Culture Celebrates Radical Black Imagination. There's an expansive feel to the new Afrofuturism, a history of black futures exhibit at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington. It travels back and forth through time. It roams geographies and the universes of black thought to make connections between worlds both cosmic and interior. As a cultural expression, Afrofuturism manifests itself in music, literature, film, fashion, and activism. It reclaims the past to reframe the present, which recedes the future. And it habitually contemplates migration to faraway places where people are safe to be as black as they want to be. As a conceptual framework, Afrofuturism enables authors, thinkers, artists, and activists to interpret the history of race and the nuances of black cultural identity on their own terms, writes curator Kevin Strait in the introduction to the exhibit's companion book. 
The 4,000-square-foot exhibit featuring more than 100 objects and the book with its 125 photos examined the roots of Afrofuturism in African antiquity. And they speculate about scientific advances, both theoretical and applied, capable of giving black people special powers, including sufficient supercool to change distant galaxies. The term Afrofuturism was coined by critic Mark Deary in his 1994 essay, Black to the Future, which asked why so few African-Americans write science fiction, a genre whose close encounters with the other, the stranger in a strange land, would seem uniquely suited to the concerns of African-American novelists. But it applies to essentially every element of the African-American experience, said Strait in an interview. Afrofuturism points to that revolutionary and radical sense of expression that's been an essential element of Black creativity, Black art, Black innovation, really throughout time. It is an aesthetic, a cultural movement, a genre that is intensely self-referential. At the exhibition's opening reception recently, poet Ephraim Nehemiah put it thusly, On this planet, the sun rise when sun say. Here suddenly I can't be late no more. Cause CP is the standard measurement of time. For those who only lotion the visible parts of their body, no worries. Cause here, ashiness ceases to exist. The exhibition uses a linear approach for its nonlinear subject. A 19th century moon mass from Cote d'Ivoire symbolizes the expanse of African communities, including those at Civilization's Dawn, that used astronomical observations and mathematics in ways typically associated with the Greeks, Chinese, Babylonians, and a de-Africanized Egypt. It moves through early America with slave rebellion leader Nat Turner, abolitionist Harriet Tubman, and mathematician Benjamin Banneker, whose radical ideas about freedom and liberation seared them in black cultural iconography. There is a rendering of Phyllis Wheatley, the first African-American to publish a book of poetry, poems on various subjects, religious and moral, was written in the language of her 18th century enslavers who were so stunted in their human understanding that they convened a tribunal to challenge her authorship. Their signed attestation finding that she had written the poems was included in the book's preface. It was Afrofuturism, before it was named, that gave Wheatley the surprising imagination, who can sing thy force, to write her way past her limitations. Two centuries later, George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic can be understood as channeling Wheatley, or perhaps she had already divined them in One Nation Under a Groove, which promised concert goers a chance to dance your way out of your constrictions. In 2011, Strait acquired for the museum's permanent collection one of Clinton's space-age motherships, Black music's most significant stage prop that gave Strait the idea for the Afrofuturism exhibit which he began working on in 2019. Also included are colorful hand-drawn charts and graphs on the social realities of African Americans developed by W.E.B. Du Bois for the exhibit of American Negroes at the 1900 Paris Exposition, part of a documentary package visually advancing post-emancipation accomplishment. The problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, he wrote in his 1903 book, The Souls of Black Folks. In his 1920 short story, The Comet, Du Bois contemplates the enduring significance of race after New York City has been destroyed by a comet. In the exhibit's companion book, scholar, filmmaker, and dance therapist Yatasha Womack has an essay titled, I Came to Africa on a Spaceship. 
In it, she examines the image of Sankofa, which means to retrieve in the Twi language of the Akan people of West Africa. It is symbolized by a bird whose feet face forward while its head looks backward. The past is future. Time simultaneity, the promise of return embedded in escape, is part of the cohesion of Afrofuturism. Afrofuturism asserts that there is wisdom in black cultures, unnamed, untapped understandings with answers for us all, writes Womack. The exhibition reaches for space with the Olivetti typewriter of sci-fi author Octavia Butler, the oracle who saw us in the stars, saw us time traveling, saw immortal black futures in the red velour Starfleet uniform worn by Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Niyota Uhura on Star Trek from 1966 to 1969. It was Nichols who suggested the character's name. In her audition for the role of communications officer, bringing with her a copy of the book Uhuru, which is Swahili for freedom. Nichols planned on leaving Star Trek after the first season, but changed her mind after civil rights activist Martin Luther King Jr. told her how important her role was for black people and urged her to stay. The stolen future encapsulated by Trayvon Martin's flight suit from Experience Aviation, a Florida nonprofit that provides education in flight and related science, technology, engineering, and math fields, helps explain the impact of the costume worn by actor Chadwick Boseman in the Marvel movie Black Panther as a symbol of a nation beyond the reach of white thieves. I'm always thinking about the fact that there are black people in the future, said Brittany Cunningham, co-founder of Campaign Zero, which advocates for police reform at the exhibit's opening reception. That's what Afrofuturism invites us to do. It invites us to be the designers of our own world, invites us to be the collaborators, the creatives, invites us to be the innovators and inventors of what the world should look like. When we do that in our music and our art and in our protests, it gives us a chance to practice building the future we deserve. Of the pillars of Afrofuturism, which include literature and visual culture, Music is the most accessible, says Mark Neal, a professor of African-American studies at Duke University. In his essay, Just Look Over Your Shoulder, The Music of Afrofuturism, Neal cites 11-year-old Michael Jackson's ad-lib in the titular reference from 1970's chart-topping I'll Be There. It echoes an earlier ad-lib by Levi Stubbs of the Four Tops and is a quintessential example of reaching into the canon of black music as habit and practice. Jackson was a bridge between eras of black musicians. His sampling of hooks and dance moves across geographies and time made him a repository for the past, present, and future of black music, Neil writes. All the sampling practices in black vernacular culture historically is a form of Afrofuturism, Neil said in an interview. Whenever you listen to black music in any historical moment, it is always in conversation with the stuff that came before and gesturing to stuff that hasn't come again. It is Maurice White's kalimba, an African thumb piano whose origins date back more than a thousand years ago, and the earth, wind, and fire lyrics, you know like we study all kinds of sciences, astrology, and mysticism, and world religion, so forth. You dig? There are self-referential codes in hip-hop, hiding in plain sight, and random sounds and references that artists brought into the music, Neil said, though much of the music black artists used to find in the crates is now digitized and behind a paywall. This can drive black creativity further into unreproducible leaps of imagination that put it beyond the reach of cultural appropriation and corporatization at least for a time. For Neil, the evolution and virtuosity of black music is part of the significance of Afrofuturism. 
It's a challenge to black genius, right? Imagine far and wide and don't think about the limits of the marketplace. Don't think about what's legible to you, right? Because you know, Jimi Hendrix's guitar solos weren't legible to anybody in the 1960s. 20 years later, everybody is trying to play like him. Coltrane solos weren't legible to everybody. 15 years later, everybody's trying to play like him, Neil said. People have been trying to play like Robert Johnson for almost a century now. The guarantee of Afrofuturism is that our creativity comes back around. In this lifetime or another, even those things invented in the moment that cannot be reproduced provide rocket fuel for a black world that is always imagining a better shake and looking to a free horizon. That was the article titled, Smithsonian's Afrofuturism Exhibit Explores the Funk of Outer and Inner Space. It was written by Lene O'Neill and published April 4, 2023 at the Anscape.com website. My next reading is another article that's written to recognize the 50th anniversary of the creation of hip-hop. This one is called Critical Moments in the History of Cool. It was published by the New York Daily News newspaper on August 11, 2023, and was written by Karu F. Daniels. This is a timeline of the history of hip-hop. It will be impossible for me to read all of the dates that are noted here on this four-page timeline, but I'm just going to try to hit one event from each year that is here. So let's get started. August 11th, 1973. 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx earns his place in history as the birthplace of hip-hop when DJ Cool Herc, also known as Clive Campbell, and his sister Cindy throw a back-to-school party in their building's community room. November 12, 1976. Africa Bombada makes his DJ debut at a party in the Bronx River Community Center, spinning vinyl on a sound system his mom gave him as a graduation present. July 13, 1977. During a two-day New York City blackout, inner-city youth reportedly break into local electronic stores across the city to scrap together turntables, microphones, mixers, speakers, and other audio equipment to become DJs and MCs. 1979. Sugar Hill Records is co-founded by Joe and Sylvia Robinson. The Sugar Hill Gang's single, Rapper's Delight, released later that year, becomes the first rap song to be played on the radio and the first to be a top 40 hit on the Billboard Hot 100. 1980. Curtis Blow is signed to Mercury Records, believed to be the first major record deal for a rapper. February 14, 1981. Funky 4 Plus 1, a Bronx-based group composed of Jazzy Jeff, Shay Rock, DJ Breakout, Guy Williams, Keith Keith, the voice of KK, and Rodney Stone become the first rap act to perform live on national television as the musical guest on Saturday Night Live. Street art trailblazer Jean-Michel Basquiat and graffiti artist Lee Kionis appear in the music video for Blondie's Rapture, which brings the genre to the pop music mainstream. The song spends two weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100. 1983, Herbie Hancock's synth and drum machine-driven Rocket wins a Grammy Award for Best R&B Instrumental Performance in 1983. 
1984. Def Jam Records is founded in Rick Rubin's New York University dormitory room. The label, with Russell Simmons as its face, will go on to boast a roster that includes LL Cool J, Public Enemy, Foxy Brown, Method Man, Red Man, J.C., Ja Rule, and Rihanna. October 25, 1985. Crush Groove, a movie loosely based on the backstories of Def Jam Records, is released. It features performances by Curtis Blow, Run DMC, Beastie Boys, The Fat Boys, and introduces the world to LL Cool J. Although panned by mainstream critics, the film is a box office success. July 5, 1986. Run DMC's third studio album, Raising Hell, achieves platinum status, becoming the first hip-hop album to sell one million units. It will go on to achieve triple platinum status the following year. August 1988. The Source magazine launches, becoming the first and last word on hip-hop music on newsstands. What started as a newsletter became the best-selling music magazine in the United States by 1999. A five-mic rating from The Source comes to designate an album as an instant classic. August 6, 1988. MTV debuts Yo! MTV Raps, hosted by Fab Five Freddy, featuring Ed Lover and Dr. Dre. The network had been famously called out for neglecting black artists during a 1983 interview with MTV host Mark Goodman, who said, We have to play the music we think an entire country is going to like. July 4th, 1989. Public Enemy releases the single Fight the Power, which goes on to become a rap anthem when filmmaker Spike Lee features the hard-hitting tune in his 1989 film Do the Right Thing. The song also makes celebrities out of Long Island rappers Chuck D and Flavor Flav. December 14, 1992. Staten Island group Wu-Tang Clan, featuring RZA and Ghostface Killer, releases the single Protect Your Neck from their Kung Fu-flavored 1993 album Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers. The band eventually becomes a brand, selling music as well as apparel. September 13, 1994. Clinton Hill Brooklyn rapper Christopher Wallace, also known as the Notorious B.I.G. and Biggie Smalls, releases Ready to Die, which Rolling Stone calls the greatest rap album of all time. March 26, 1995. N.W.A. rapper Eazy-E, born Eric Lynn Wright, dies of AIDS-related pneumonia a week after he publicly announced he had been diagnosed with the disease. September 7, 1996. L.A.-based rapper Tupac Shakur, 25, is shot in Las Vegas and dies days later. His murder remains unsolved, though investigators are still on the case. One of Shakur's best-known songs is the 1996 diss track, Hit Em Up, which takes aim at his rival, Biggie Smalls. March 9, 1997. Biggie Smalls is shot dead while sitting in a vehicle outside a party shortly after midnight. His second album is released 16 days later. The L.A. killing of the bigger-than-life Who Shot Your Rapper remains unsolved, though many believe his death was connected to the killing of Shakur. September 29, 1998. Jay-Z, a rapper raised in Brooklyn's Marcy Houses, releases his chart-topping third studio album, Volume 2, Hard Knock Life. The title track memorably mimes lyrics from the stage show Annie. February 13, 1999. Lauren Hill's Miseducation of Lauren Hill dominates the 53rd Annual Grammys. 
She becomes the first female to pick up five awards in one night and also the first rapper to win Album of the Year. May 4, 2000. Eminem releases the explosive The Marshall Mathers LP, a controversial, dark, and much-revered album that rocks hip-hop with furious, unvarnished lyrics and rapid-fire internal rhymes. The Detroit rapper's second major label album includes The Stand, The Real Slim Shady, and The Way I Am. February 4, 2004. Outcast Speaker Box, The Love Below, dominates the Grammys, winning Best Rap Album and Best Album of the Year. The album from the Atlanta rappers, which includes buoyant songs like Hey Ya and Roses, is the first rap album to win both awards, a feat not matched for more than a decade afterward. February 10, 2004. Kanye West, a rapper from Chicago, releases his debut studio album, The College Dropout. The introspective record speckled with stories and clever lines dominates the pop charts. It includes Through the Wire, We Don't Care, and Family Business. November 22, 2010. Trinidadian-born, Bronx-raised rapper Nicki Minaj releases her first studio album, Pink Friday. With eight singles including Super Bass, the release catapults her to worldwide fame. May 9, 2011. Michelle Obama hosts a poetry reading at the White House and invites rapper Common, much to the consternation of conservative media. 2014. Critically acclaimed Philadelphia act The Roots becomes the house band for The Tonight Show. July 13, 2015. Lin-Manuel Miranda's hip-hop musical Hamilton premieres on Broadway and previews after a smash off-Broadway run at the Public Theater. The rap-heavy biography of Alexander Hamilton swiftly becomes the hottest ticket in town, a distinction it will hold on to for years. November 12, 2019. Kendrick Lamar becomes the first rapper to win the Pulitzer Prize for music for his album, Damn. June 2019. Forbes names Jay-Z the first hip-hop billionaire due to his combined network from masters, album sales, and various business ventures. Many would later argue that Dr. Dre beat him to the billionaire circle, but as of 2023, Jay-Z remains the richest in the game with an estimated $2.5 billion net worth. There are photographs that go along with this story. There is a 1994 picture of DJ Cool Herc. He's wearing a black leather jacket, black gloves, and amber-colored sunglasses. There's a picture of Christopher Wallace, popularly known as Biggie Smalls. He's wearing a leather coat, a cane gold hat, and he's leaning against a SUV rolling a blunt. And there is a 2002 picture of the casket and pallbearers at Jason Mazel's funeral. He's also known as Jam Master J of Run DMC. That was a reading of some of the events that appeared on a timeline of the history of hip-hop in an article titled, Critical Moments in the History of Cool. It was written by Carew F. Daniels and appeared in the New York Daily News newspaper on August 11, 2023. I found my next reading at the website called jstor.org which is an online digital library that specializes in academic journals. I'm going to read a book review from the journal called Radical Teacher. 
The name of the book being reviewed is A Worthy Piece of Work, The Untold Story of Madeline Morgan and the Fight for Black History in Schools, written by Michael Hines. This book review was written by Susan Klonsky and appeared in the Spring 2023 edition of Radical Teacher Journal. Students of the History of Education in Chicago know of the work of Carter G. Woodson, the great theorist and organizer who initiated Black History Week in Chicago in 1926. Woodson is generally recognized as the father of Black studies and as the chief early advocate of celebrating the achievements and culture of African Americans in classrooms and communities. Woodson and the organization he established, the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, known as ASNLH, fought for the inclusion of a fulsome appreciation of Black achievement into the preordained and highly centralized curricula of Chicago public schools and other school districts. Then as now, his work was met with resistance and was frequently diluted and ignored. Rarely are other educators acknowledged for the early efforts to expand, include, or correct the historical record presented to students. Scholar Michael Hines has examined the long history of the battle through the work of Madeline Morgan, a Chicago teacher who received scant credit for her efforts as an educator and organizer. Morgan deserves better, and Michael Hines has carefully examined the early efforts she led, along with hundreds of black women teachers and parents, to shine a bright light on the accomplishments of black Americans and to incorporate this content into the curricula of schools, particularly those serving black children. Over many decades of work with Chicago public schools, I confess I had never heard of Morgan, later known as Madeline Stratton Morris. I found no references to her among several histories of the Chicago public schools or among seminal examinations of curricular theory. Morgan was not an academic, although she earned both a bachelor's and a master's degree at Northwestern and remained connected to various scholarly and research associations throughout her life. Her purpose was practical and urgent, to transform the education of black children in the Chicago schools and the system that governed the curriculum and to foster interracial and intercultural respect through education. This book reveals the transformative leadership role of Chicago's black women who served as librarians, teachers, mothers, and civic leaders. Most of these women arrived in Chicago in the first wave of the Great Migration and were educated in Chicago. Their social networks, in Morgan's case, her membership in Phi Delta Kappa, a national sorority of black educators, proved a source of sustenance and influence beginning in the 1930s, offering national connections and recognition. Why was Morgan basically ignored in the annals of black studies in public education? Michael Hines offers, Black schoolmen, and especially school women working at the primary and secondary levels, were often relegated to a somewhat ancillary position in the black history movement. A 1945 article, Written by none other than Carter G. Woodson makes this point more clearly. Woodson's piece, Negro Historians of Our Time, surveys a number of Negroes who may properly be designated as modern historians. Lauding both the growth and the increasing professionalism of the field, Woodson concentrates on male academics such as John Hope Franklin, Rayford Logan, and Luther P. Jackson. Only toward the end of the piece does Woodson mention the work of black teachers, noting that this story would not be complete without the inclusion of at least certain men and women. Hines relays in meticulous detail the enormous number of meetings, conferences, and organizations in which Morgan participated, spoke, wrote, and organized over the course of her career spanning five decades. Often hyperlocal in its mapping of her work, 
this book may be of greatest interest to Chicago historians. But the crucial element was the force of character and vision which propelled Morgan to persuade her colleagues that the creation and acceptance of a curriculum was both essential and attainable. This project came to fruition as a series of curriculum guides adopted by the Chicago Board of Education, authored principally by Morgan and dryly titled The Supplementary Units for the Course of Instruction in Social Studies. After prolonged negotiation and debate, the Chicago School Superintendent and the Chicago Bureau of Curriculum adopted the supplementary units and they began to be distributed in the spring of 1942. The United States was at war. Social and civic unity was a serious priority and the units represented an acknowledgement of deep-seated inequities not only in the resources available to schools serving black children, but in the content of instruction. Morgan and her associates labored to ensure that graphic descriptions of the treatment of enslaved people and the conditions under Jim Crow were included in the supplementary units. These are the same sort of depictions which are being erased and censored in classrooms today in Florida and Texas for fear they may cause discomfort to white students. But in the 1940s, those most likely to be discomfited were the children of the Great Migration, newly arrived from the Black Belt South, for whom the memory of lynchings and Klan terror were all too fresh. In 1943, riots broke out in several U.S. cities, overwhelmingly initiated high states, by white mobs angry over black economic and social gains. Several popular publications theorized that Chicago remained peaceful in part because the schools were promoting greater racial tolerance and understanding. In late 1943, Los Angeles experienced what became known as the Zoot Suit Riots, as white servicemen from the surrounding bases repeatedly descended onto Mexican-American and African-American neighborhoods intent on destruction and violence. In the aftermath, the assistant superintendent of the Los Angeles Public Schools wrote to Madeline Morgan, Here in Los Angeles, with its tremendous Negro problem, we have heard of your success in developing work units for children which reflect the achievement of the Negroes during the past two decades. We are very anxious to use your materials. May we have copies. Over the ensuing decade, other districts followed suit, if only as window dressing, to demonstrate some level of activity to cool things down. And as the war drew to a close and the urgency for intercultural cooperation waned, Morgan's work gradually fell into disuse. Indeed, hostility to school integration surged. In the fall of 1944, the home of the Chicago Superintendent of Schools was attacked with a pack of dynamite. In the fall of 1945, only a month after the end of the war, hundreds of high school students in Chicago's South Side staged an anti-Negro strike, refusing to go into school unless black students were removed. Similar incidents arose in industrial cities in the Midwest, where great numbers of new migrants had arrived during and immediately after World War II, seeking employment, housing, and education. By late 1945, the supplementary units were mostly disused except in black schools. The fight for full equality in the public schools of Chicago has taken many twists over the years since Morgan's day. The schools after Brown found new ways to enforce racial separation and to limit the options of black children, even going so far as to confine children in black neighborhoods to hundreds of temporary demountable classrooms in order to keep them within their defined attendance boundaries and out of the white neighborhood schools. A 1980 consent decree set up magnet schools and other devices meant to promote integration, but by 2009, the degree was set aside. 
In ensuing decades, many initiatives sought to revive and update the black history curriculum and to weave it more fully into the social studies as well as all the domains of elementary and secondary education in Chicago. These curricular units come and go. Indeed, in 2019, the Chicago Public Schools adopted the study of the 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones in the high schools. That was a review of the book titled, A Worthy Piece of Work, The Untold Story of Madeline Morgan and the Fight for Black History in Schools, written by Michael Hines. This appeared in the journal Radical Teacher, and I found this journal at the online digital library titled JSTOR. Org. And this book review was written by Susan Klonsky and published in the spring 2023 edition of Radical Teacher Journal. That's all for this week. If you would like to hear this show again or listen to past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts or at the Audio Reader Archives at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour. Thank you.